Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Silence where we are bringing science into focus here on the airways of Radio Fodder. We're creeping it real today, chatting all things creepy crawlies because we just lava insects. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I have good 10 start. points. That was off to a all right, we're off to a great start. Um, off to a flying start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My name is Katrina and I'm an immunologist, but I do love insects. And I'm joined, as always, by Kate and Kai. So, Kate, what is your most memorable interaction <laughs> with an insect? So, yes. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm a neuroscientist and... Uh, I ride a motorbike because I'm cool like that. Um, <laughs> you are pretty cool. <laughs> and one time I was uh, riding down a uh, highway um, with... So my motorcycle helmet, it has two visors. It has a sunglass visor that has maybe an inch gap, right? And then mm-hmm. a main visor. I had the main visor up to get a bit of airflow because it was in WA. It was hot. It was summer. But I had the sunglass visor down. So there's like a tiny little inch gap right yep. in my helmet. Um, and a bee gets in. Uh. Uh, not only that, the bee gets in to the inch gap that's horizontally an inch as well because it manages to get to my nose and get stuck in my oh. nose ring. Oh. Uh yeah, oh. me riding down. I had pulled over and it was stuck in my nose ring. And it stung the inside of my nose. It's just, I, I was fine. I pulled over before it stung me and no, like nothing bad happened. But like, oh, I look back in hindsight, so I'm bad. like, how, like, what are the chances of that tiny little, like, you know, in, uh, certainly memorable. We'll yeah. never forget. <laughs> we'll never, ever, ever forget. Uh, Kai, how about you? Yep. So I'm Kai. I'm a physicist. And my most memorable experience with insects was when my family was camping in Litchfield, National Park in the Northern Territory. Oh, that's my... Oh, God. Yeah. Going to <laughs> oh, my gosh. We've got the same story. We've got the same story. And apparently this is not always I the don't case. know where this is going. Appar- so. Apparently it's not always like this. But when we were there, there were so many insects. Oh, so many mosquitoes. And it wasn't just mosquitoes oh, either. It was like little thrip bug things, like any kind of creepy crawly really? flying insects you can oh, think gosh. of. And we're camping there and we're trying to cook dinner. Oh, gosh. And no. like we've got a little gas stove and there's... Heck. Insects yeah, flying yeah. into the flames and going in the food and yeah. Uh, hard pass. No, thank we, you. <laughs> my friend and I were in a camper van and we just ended up having to like stay inside. It was just mosquitoes for us. And um, we're like, okay, we are cooking in here. We are washing our teeth in, like brushing our yep. teeth in here. We are not going to the bathroom. Like <laughs> too bad. You're not going to the bathroom tonight. Piss in a pot. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and we kept finding these bugs like in all our camping stuff years later. Oh, oh my God. And it was like just, oh. I'm I'm actually like very glad that you had the same experience because other people we tell this to are like no Litchfield it's it's yeah. amazing it's so no. beautiful like no I bugs. mean it's beautiful but so many bugs if there's bugs <laughs> like yeah yeah wow it's a lot absolutely Crazy. I'm torn as to whether to go there now uh, <laughs> well it's beautiful it really is mm, um yeah. but we're going to talk more about bugs and insects a bit later but we might start off with some news Kate what news have you got for us yeah so look I'm gonna credit where credit is due. I want to give you the title of the media release for this paper that I then went and like read the paper, but uh, it's what drew me in. I just love it. And it was just good boy, good boys find bad koi. Good boys find bad koi. And I was like, good boy. 
boys and 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 it's it's about dogs finding finding fish essentially okay. like it's essentially yeah. this study found that a scent trained dog can detect whether invasive carp which you know quay are a type of carp um mm. are present in water just as well like just as effectively as tools that sample environmental dna mm. so mm. researchers trained a dog important information dog named ruby yeah uh who was a female Labrador Retriever cross border collie, eight years old, very cute, selected from 13 initial candidates. So mm-hmm. definitely not a good boy, though. So bad title. Good girl. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Good girl finds bad fish. Um, anyway, Ruby was trained using kibble from like an automatic feed dispenser to essentially detect and target water that had come from an aquarium housing carp versus an aquarium housing no fish. So like not even mm. looking at the fish, mm. just water that's come from mm. where they've lived. Um, and then when Ruby got good at that, they added in another not target control, which was water from a tank housing goldfish. So yeah, it's not like yeah. she was just detecting fishiness of yeah. water, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like specific to this species of, of mm-hmm. fish mm-hmm. that is, well, I'll get to, you know, is actually quite invasive and can be quite damaging. But Ruby was able to successfully detect water. <laughs> I've written water that was carpy. <laughs> I'm a real science communicator. Um it but, communicates the point. Yeah, well, <laughs> the cool thing is she was able to detect the water that was carpy even when the biomass of the carp was like well below what is required for that, you know, negative ecological impact that can happen when there's like heaps of carp in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and then they also used quantitative PCR on mm. DNA that they extracted from the water and found that this method was like just as sensitive as Ruby. Yeah. Like wow. Ruby was just as good as this this method. They were both able to detect it below these levels. Nice. And Go so, detection dogs. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, given carp, as I've kind of alluded to, are a highly invasive uh, species and they pose significant threat to freshwater ecosystems worldwide. Introducing scent dogs as as <laughs> detection methods is like Far cheaper than these mm. like DNA extraction yeah. methods, and yeah. just like far cuter. Um, and also, they cover more ground, like in a quicker yeah. time. So, like, I thought that was a cute and exciting and wholesome study. So <laughs> yeah. that's that's my news. Uh, Kai, what have you got? Well, similar to you, Kate, I was attracted to this news story by the title of the media release. <laughs> There's some good science communicators out there. Yeah, and this one was. A spoonful of sugar helps the dendrites go down. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Tell me more. (laughs) So we're talking about batteries here. And the simplest batteries consist of two electrodes with an electrolyte solution between them. And chemical reactions happen between the electrodes and the chemicals in the electrolyte and creates electricity. But as this happens, you can get a buildup of material off the electrodes that forms these sort of tree-shaped branching structures that sort of reach out mm-hmm. into the into the electrolyte and they're called dendrites yeah. and they're very bad. There you go. Mm-hmm. See, because like when, when you said dendrite initially, I the knew. neuroscientist yeah. in me was well, like, uh, tell me more uh, because dendrites are also a part of yeah. the neuron that are not bad, but uh, actually know. quite good. The word dendrites comes from Greek well, it's, word it's for yeah, tree. tree branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, so it know, makes sense that they... You lured me in. I know. I knew I'd get you with that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, very bad for batteries, even if they're good for brains, um, <laughs> because they short circuit. They can short circuit the battery if they uh, like right. grow yeah, all yeah. the way across. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of a worst case scenario. Like if that happens, often it will cause fire. Yeah, which okay. is pretty bad. Not what you want. But not before ideal. it gets that, they can, you know, even just cause the performance to degrade, and mm-hmm. that's not very good. Also, not what you want. <laughs> yeah, and lithium-ion batteries can get dendrites, and there's some examples of like smartphone batteries bursting mm-hmm. into flames, and they're like, oh, what happened here? It was probably dendrites. Mm. There's another type of battery called lithium metal batteries, which. Like, instead of just using lithium ions, they have actual chunks of lithium metal. Okay. Lithium metal is known to be 
flammable. It'll yeah. burst into flames in water. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and he's even more susceptible to dendrites. Good. So uh-huh. that's why we don't see lithium metal batteries. That's why in the I have never heard of a lithium metal battery. No, even though like performance-wise, they're much better than lithium mm, ions. Okay. So it would be mm-hmm. great if we could have a, a better battery. But they're risky. Yeah. But mm. just talking about lithium in general, like lithium metal is actually pretty rare like mm, and expensive. Right, yeah. yeah. And... Because it explodes in contact with water, you have to use special electrolytes. You can't just uh, use an yeah, aqueous solution, yeah, yeah. which means the electrolytes are often very toxic. So, <laughs> so lithium all in all. batteries, like if we could avoid them, that would be great. So another option is zinc batteries, which have a lot of similar advantages to lithium ion in terms of energy density mm-hmm. and things like that. But good thing, zinc is much more common and the batteries are just yeah. less toxic, except zinc batteries also get dendrites pretty bad right mm. so this is where the the spoonful of sugar comes in okay yeah I'm, i've been waiting some researchers <laughs> from china found that adding sugar like sucrose sucrose like yeah. actual table sugar yeah. to the electrolyte solution what? just helped prevent dendrites <laughs> why wow. do they have any i <sighs> so it has to do with the way that the molecules in the solution surround the metal ions mm-hmm. so you've got a zinc ion and the water molecules are attracted to that because water is a polar molecule. Yeah, yeah. So the, the negatively charged or oxygen side mm. gets attracted and then, you know, gets surrounded by this, mm. this like little bubble of water molecules sort of mm. sticking to it. And they found that when you put sugar in, sugar also has polar bonds, mm. like hydroxyl groups and stuff. Mm. And these mean the sugar partially surrounds uh, the zinc. So yeah. it's kind of like a little sugar shield. A little sugar shield. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and oh, I love that. It means that the zinc ions can move around in the battery more effectively with their little with sugar, their little shield, sugar shield. I love Which has two effects. One, it means that they move more quickly and makes the batteries actually perform a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And two, they don't get dendrites and catch fire. Yeah. Which we love. Which we love. So yeah, there you go. Incredible. Oh, lovely. Katrina, what do you got? Well, there's some new research as people are tracking hummingbirds. Um, that mm. it, it, there's there's this new research that shows that one in five adult female white-necked Jacobin hummingbirds look like males, um, and okay. this is a rare case of deceptive mimicry within a species. And essentially, females are like trying to don male-like plumage and uh-huh. trying to pass themselves off as males, mm-hmm. and really. What they want to do is try to minimize their um, their, their interaction with males. <laughs> Essentially, the males are bullies, <laughs> and they get reduced aggression. So, oh my white neck Jacobin hummingbirds sport a colorful blue and white plumage as juveniles when they're young, and then they grow into adulthood. And essentially, males retain the color as they grow, um, while females they kind of get mm. a little bit duller <laughs> um, mm. and they're sort of more muted green mm. and and at least most females are mm. like that obviously mm-hmm. but curiously about 20 percent of females defy that kind of norm and retain their gender non-conforming <laughs> hummingbirds <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> i'm here for this so yeah as i said males of this species like pretty simply put are bullies yep. um, they defend their territories they chase rivals away from food sources they court females and they fight mm-hmm. and their mm-hmm. aggressive behavior kind of relies on an underlying difference difference in their body size and their physiology so they're larger they're better at combative flight and Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty much compared to the I guess more duller colored females Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the team was looking at the territorial kind of pattern of these birds and they discovered that more males feed in kind of this spending longer amounts of time at, at like a smaller number of feeding sites. So they kind of are the bullies of particular mm-hmm. areas, mm-hmm. whereas females find that they can't spend that much time at any given place because mm-hmm. they get sort of scared mm-hmm. off or chased off. So these females are essentially trying to pass themselves off as males without acting like them. Their behavior is still very, very similar to the mm. other female birds. Interesting. Um, it's just... Yeah, it's just aesthetics. Um, And there are so many examples of deceptive mimicry between species. So, for example, like a harmless species Mm. will mimic the color of a more venomous species. So, like, for example, with king snake species. So non-venomous king snakes have evolved kind of an anti-predator defense where Mm. they take the same color as Mm. the venomous king snakes so that you know, other animals don't try and eat them because mm. they think that they're poisonous. Um, but, yeah, this is kind of an odd example of deceptive mimicry within a species, mm. yeah. like trying to get away from those males. That's <laughs> – I love that. It's so <laughs> <laughs> Fox Joy. Yes. Um, so we're going on to talk about insects now and, you know, we've got to have a song in between, but we couldn't really think of uh, – I don't know. What do you want to play? Like, I reckon we just play, like, something by the Beatles. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. And today we're talking all about insects. So, Kate, do you want to start us off? I absolutely do want to start us off. Um, And I want to start us off with, you know, it's a well-established fact, established by science, that not everyone has the same level of attractiveness. Uh, <laughs> to mosquitoes, and science says it. Mosquitoes, <laughs> that is. Uh, that's 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 the caveat. Uh, not everyone is as attractive to mosquitoes, um, like in the same levels, which is like crazy. Like I don't know. How about you guys? Like, are you big mozzie mosquito attractors? Like, because I know that I'm the person if I go out with a group of people, like. I'm always the person that ends up yeah. covered in mosquito mm. bites. I, I do, do get bitten by mosquitoes yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we're a group of all like... <laughs> so what happens if all three of us hang out together? <laughs> well, then we find out who's more attractive <laughs> because they're, they're, they will go to the one like, you know, um, that's that's more attractive. So we're just going to have to hang out in... <laughs> Let's not hang out somewhere filled with places. mosquitoes because mozzies are bad Litchfield. for a whole we'll all go to <laughs> host of reasons. But I'm not. I'm not going to use this segment to go into why mozzies are bad. I want to talk about um, why some people are more attractive to mozzies than others because I like. I I just always thought that was so unfair that it was always me. <laughs> and so I want to know why. But before I launch into that, I want to just like I didn't realize this until like sort of researching this topic that like it's only the female mozzies that mm. bite you, right? Males yeah, only yeah. eat flower nectar whereas the females eat both flower nectar and blood um so <laughs> bit of a diverse diet there. It's, it's great no it's because they need the protein in the blood to develop the eggs it's used for reproductive yep. purposes yeah. um so that makes a lot of sense now that i know that and yeah there are definitely differences in how attractive different people are to mosquitoes but it's not just one single reason or trait causing this because mozzies use more than one single cue to find their meals so i'm just gonna you know Go through a bunch of them. Not all of them, probably, because there's so many, but some of the main ones. So the biggest one we think is related to breathing, right? And that's because of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Um, And so CO2 levels are a big factor in how, quote unquote, attractive you are to a mozzie for a few different reasons. Um, And, well, essentially two ways CO2 increases your odds of being bitten. Number one, it sort of 
activates the mosquito as in it like triggers them to fly and mm-hmm. to fly faster. So they're more alert, they're more aware that like, you know, there's a meal nearby. Let's mm. let's go hunting. It's hunting time, boys. Um, number two, it's also an attractant. So scientists think that they use it to sort of orient themselves to the source of the gas with, you know, the help of air currents and stuff. Um, so like carbon dioxide is such a big part of how mosquitoes find their targets. Um and we know this because they actually have three different types of these smell sensing cells in their mouth parts that detect CO2. They have three okay. different CO2 receptors. And I found a really cool 2014 study that essentially showed just how important these like smell sensing, you know, CO2 sensing cells are by creating, they created genetically modified mosquitoes whose CO2 sensory cells didn't work. Right. So these modified mozzies no longer got excited when CO2 was puffed into the air, as mm. you sort of expect. Right. You get yeah. rid of the sensing. Yeah. Um, but in fact, they were about 15 percent worse than their unmodified relatives at hunting out a person in a large enclosed area. Um, but what was really interesting is that the mosquitoes lacking their CO2 sense cells were also no longer attracted to other cues that helped them find hosts, yeah. which suggests that CO2 might actually have this third sort of role as like a gatekeeper of sorts for like mm-hmm. other attractants. And like, it makes sense because it's a pretty good indicator of, you know, animal life. And if you're looking mm. for blood, you're looking for something that's alive. That's mm. um, yeah. an animal because, you know, and so, you know, a tree is going to not be emitting CO2. Whereas like something that's bleeding is, is yeah. so it's like, that mm. makes sense. But then like, okay, plot twist again, one more plot twist in this study. <laughs> The mozzies lacking the CO2 sensor could still find a target at close range, which suggests that the CO2 actually draws the insects in from a distance and then it's something else that helps them zero in when they get close to their targets. So bigger groups of people all breathing might draw them in, but who gets targeted in that group (laughs) might not be CO2 related. Mm. So it might not be like just a metabolism thing. So So me just holding my breath in a group of friends isn't going to (laughs) help. No, no. Um, You need the whole group of friends to be holding their breath and then you're good, right? Um, So, okay, what are these other cues? Generally, yeah, it's generally just things that send out signals that there's animal life and therefore blood nearby, um, you know. So sweat can also draw mm. mozzies in, partly because mm-hmm. of the moisture. That's an attractant. Also, when you sweat, you're normally warm and the mm. warmth is an attractant. Mm-hmm. But it's also how you smell, right? It's it's the, the content of your sweat. So most of the chemicals in your sweat are what we call volatile. That is, they can easily turn into a vapor and float yeah. off into the air. Yeah. And that includes things like lactic acids, amines, sulfides, Um and most of these are formed by the little cute communities of bacteria that live mm-hmm. on your skin, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, part of the mozzie magnet equation has to do with these bacterial communities. And it's been found that some mozzies are attracted just to people that have just more bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of these components in particular, lactic acid, might play the biggest sort of role in all of these in terms of mozzie attraction. And there was this 2001 study that I just thought was really interesting the researchers took sweat samples from volunteers and ranked them from most loved to least loved by mosquitoes mm-hmm. right um and they found that the popular people were always popular the mosquitoes consistently went to their samples even though they were collected on 28 different days over the course of the year so wow. that didn't play a role mm. or anything right and it seemed to be because of the lactic acid because the most attractive sweat had between three to five times more less lactic acid 
than the least attractive. Hmm. But then to test this idea, the researchers went and added lactic acid to the samples that weren't attractive. And then the mozzies were suddenly like, yeah, yeah. this sweat is the good sweat. (laughs) More than three times as many mozzies chose an altered sweat than their previous Mm. favorite after lactic acid had been added. So, you know, in terms of why some people have more lactic acid in their sweat than others, you know, in the end it comes down to a really complicated mix of things like your microbiome, your genetics, mm. hygiene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like it's a really you know, complicated thing, but if you are mm. someone who naturally has more CO2 in your sweat, um sorry not CO2, lactic, lactic acid, acid in your sweat, um you're probably more of a mozzie magnet. Um <laughs> yeah. And I think just like finally i'm going to touch on an interesting non-biological factor which is fashion so something that you maybe <laughs> can choose or change right and so there are a lot of studies showing that mosquitoes um are attracted to dark colored clothing right mm-hmm. so a bunch of studies dating back like centuries have shown that mozzies love to land on dark colored surfaces everything from planted barn roofs to boxes to you know clothing Interestingly, two seconds to just say that I couldn't find like anything on skin tones, which feels very problematic <laughs> to me. Um, mm. But I'm going to just move back to the research I could find, yep. um, which but it makes me kind of wonder because like flies like to land on darker clothes as well, don't they? Yeah. Or is that just like an anecdotal thing? I don't know. I didn't I didn't look into it, but I have. heard yeah. that. I have heard yeah. that. And maybe and like, you know, studies found that like, well, sorry, like they were thinking, you know, maybe it's a heat thing because we've already mm-hmm. established that they're yeah. they're attracted to heat and you know dark clothes absorb more heat so yeah. is it actually yeah. is that what you know is leading them to land on darker surfaces but a 2019 study found that mozzies go for dark objects regardless of how warm they are mm-hmm. um mm. so it's not that um and like interestingly they also found or there was this other study that also found it's not just this is a study from like the 80s but they found that it's not just how much like Sorry, it's not the wave, just the wavelength of the light, mm-hmm. aka the color of the yeah. light that yeah. gets reflected. It's how much light is reflected off the cloth. And so basically, mozzies like things that are not super reflective. They mm-hmm. like no shiny. They are not yeah. okay. like magpies, right? I couldn't actually <laughs> find any studies testing sequins or glitter or shimmery fabrics <laughs> or, you know, disco ball clothing as mozzie deterrents. And I really do want to see that science. Like, someone We're scientists. Um, I'll do the research if someone gives me the money. Um, I mean, just wear shiny clothes and hang around outside. Yeah, well, I'll do it. I'll I'll be my own lab rat. We Um, need like a big N number though. So, you know, lots of people to come up and either wear glittery clothes or dark clothes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Shotgun glittery. um, So I thought that was really interesting in terms of like, it can come down to just like what you're wearing as well. So Mm. like there are so many factors, you know, diet, is generally not a factor, but there were some interesting things about they found like acutely after eating bananas um, oh. compared to like grapes with a control. They found mm. that mosquitoes, and this also makes sense because bananas are high in potassium, which can increase your lactic acid production. So Fair checks enough. out, um, you know. But, but grapes aren't some magical mozzie repellent. No, they're not. They're not. So, <laughs> oh. you know. Just rub yourself on grapes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to eat grapes, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like the one last thing, you know, that you might have heard is like blood type plays a role. And mm. the kind of general thing that you hear is that O blood type is the most, um, you know, popular. But I found heaps of studies. Yeah. It's, it depends on the species of mosquito. And there mm. are more than... 
3,500 species of mozzie worldwide. Wow. And I found different studies that, you know, different ones preferred A, B or B. And, you know, and it also had to do with like how many eggs were produced or mm. like it affected the digestion rate and all sorts of like different things. So it's the blood type thing is much more complicated than is generally <laughs> um, put out there. And so I would just say blood type is probably not going to be any of our reasons for being yeah. more attracted to uh, yeah. attractive to mosquitoes. You so, can't change your blood type either. So. No, you can't, you can't. So I guess just dress like a disco ball and that's yeah. the advice I'm going to leave you all with <laughs> Even today. though we haven't tested that yet, but maybe we, maybe we should. Maybe we should. <laughs> all right. Thanks for that, Kate. Now we're going to put on another song. This is Mosquito by Stella Donnelly. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder and that was Mosquito by Stella Donnelly because today we are bringing insect science all into focus. So, Catriona, what insect science have you got for us? Well, I'm going to talk about citizen science, so what we can do to help oh, insects. Yes, <laughs> that's cool. So if you think about, you know, what's in a name? A heck of a lot of information, actually. Mm. <laughs> um, so the name of an insect is its unique key for information and advice as well if you think about you know what what you need to do um if you're around certain insects can they carry disease are they actually pests are they not um so we can identify species because of the work of taxonomists who name them and they define their biology and they've been doing that for decades but um essentially what's really cool is that they answer questions before they've even been asked really and I think mosquitoes are a prime example and you know we were just talking about uh, mosquitoes so knowing what the species actually is is Mm. important because Mm. you know mosquitoes kill more than any other animal (laughs) due to mosquito-borne diseases and i know that you weren't talking about um you know the bad things mosquitoes do and you know mosquitoes are you know sometimes great but um (laughs) even though kate you said that there were 3500 species there are actually about 200 that are undefined we don't know what they are like they don't have a species name um so if you don't know what it is you don't know what disease it might be capable of spreading like malaria dengue zika anything like that and in australia alone only 30 percent of insects have names meaning that we don't always know what (laughs) we're dealing with okay yep (laughs) So, yeah, names are important and so is the tracking of this kind of information. So this is where citizen science comes in. Like, obviously, there are scientists who are working on this, but Mm. they kind of rely on the help of a lot of people and communities. Mm. So if you're not familiar with the idea of citizen science, it's where, you know, everyone and anyone can help collect scientific data and then they collaborate with professional Mm. scientists who kind of sort through that data. Yeah. So, for example, if you capture a photo of a, like a native bee in your backyard, mm. um, the quick snap of your digital camera, and if you upload it, essentially you are recording three pieces of data. You're recording the appearance of mm-hmm. that particular insect, the um, it, the location, exactly, yeah. and the moment in time. Yeah, mm. right. And all from a single photograph, these pieces of information can inform our understanding of that ecosystem and the yeah. broader the broader ecosystem. And like um, phone cameras are so good these yeah, days. That right. Like you can get some really good quality <laughs> images yeah. just from some old mate with his expensive <laughs> iPhone in his backyard. Like that's that's great. Yeah, and it's so simple, you know, all you need to do is take a photo and upload it, and that's like the power that citizen science has. Where do I upload? Uh, well, there there are multiple repositories. Actually, mm-hmm. one is Bowerbird. Um, that's one that I know off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But like, there are different ones for different species as well. So yeah, I'll right. talk about Moth Tracker later, which okay. is for bogan moths specifically. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of different repositories that 
anyone like people you can upload photos when you take photos of wildlife mm. um, when they're viewed yeah. by either entomologists for yeah. insects or ecologists and other scientists to identify what you've got and assess the biodiversity in particular areas yeah, cool. and one really exciting example of a real strength and, and power that citizen science has involves a tiny little ladybird species so museum records only had it from 1874 to 1949 and okay. there were no documented sightings of this particular ladybird species for over 50 years so everyone just assumed that they were extinct, extinct. yeah but then one day in 2016 an image was taken by a photographer in portland what and it was uploaded to bowbird the, yeah. the citizen science app i talked about and um People identified it as that extinct ladybird. Oh, my gosh, that is And wild. they were like, okay, so it's not it's, extinct. Yeah, there's still some fighting wow. out there. Yeah, so essentially it's kind of just like, oh, wow, it's, it's come back from the dead, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, it's still fighting. Um, and photos uploaded to these kind of repositories not only record like the presence and existence of particular species like that, but they also show how they behave with each other and their environment. So there was a fascinating example of leaf cutter bees mm-hmm. and they were long thought to build leafy brood kind of cells underground in disused burrows. So like they'd find a burrow and kind of build their home there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of three days, a real stand-up citizen <laughs> from Emerald in Queensland photographed a leaf cutter bee flying back and forth, taking cut leaves and oh. pollen into a little burrow. Oh, my gosh. Um, and it actually wasn't disused. It was actually more the home of a wolf spider. Oh, <laughs> gosh. So that alone contradicted the textbooks. Like, you know, it's not a disused burrow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there was also no sign of aggression from the spider. So, so they were wow. mates. Yeah, they were mates. And so that was the Whoa. first evidence for cohabitation of oh. leafcutter bees and an arachnid that was previously thought to be predatory. Yeah, that's wow. wow. That's, that's, that's some wholesome Yeah, wholesome it's lovely. <laughs> so speaking of relationships, Relationships between animals. No one species lives in isolation. I think mm. that's that's fairly obvious. You know, we're all kind of in one ecosystem, mm. um, or rather multiple. But you know, we're all in this together. Yeah, we're all on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to move on to bogon moths, which um, have faced a 99.9, sorry, percent decline, which is still mm. a lot. Not 99.9, <laughs> but like still a heck of a lot. It's still not great. <laughs> Um, so the loss of any species is obviously a tragedy in its own mm. right, but the rapid disappearing uh, t- disappearance of bogon moths has much wider effects because like many insects, um, bogon moths are near the bottom of the food chain mm. and so they're a major food source for other critically mm. endangered animals, um, particularly the mountain pygmy possum. Um, and it's really central to the entire alpine ecosystem mm. here in Victoria. So essentially these moths provide a necessary feast for mountain pygmy possums when they awaken from their hibernation (laughs) Um, and it's also a key food source for birds and and other mammals and even some reptiles and frogs um, many of which are endangered in alpine regions our alpine regions aren't doing great no Um, No, i've I've heard that (laughs) yeah but even just as a as a side note even humans have feasted on them so this Mm, is just like mm. a a fun fact Mm -hmm. um cooked bogon moths remains were found in this campsite, uh, two thousand year old grinding stones were found in this cave, what? and this was in the Australian Alps, and they found it last year. Um, yeah. In and 
it's believed to be the oldest archaeological evidence anywhere in the world of insects as a food source. Whoa. Wow. So, yeah. Because I feel like that's where cool. we're heading back to, yeah. right? Yeah. In <laughs> terms of sustainable protein sources. Exactly. So good for uh, protein. Um, I've, I've totally munched on some, um, what were they? Like lemongrass crickets. Oh, no, like in a pack, like a little snack pack oh. of like, yeah, little crickets. Amazing. That's yum, cool. Yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> um, so each year from September to mid-October, the tiny and very, very precious mountain pygmy possums arise from their slumber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they're, they're, you know, hibernating for months underneath the snow and they begin feasting on billions of bogon moths that migrate from mm. Queensland to Victoria's Alpine region. But for the past two springs, moth numbers have collapsed from around 4.4 billion in Alpine areas to almost undetectable. Yeah, wow. Um, that's- sad yeah and so mountain pygmy possums are also hungry and that's you know dramatically af- yeah, affecting right. their breeding success so we don't know exactly why the moths aren't making it back but it's you know likely drought pesticides changes in agricultural practices mm. all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. but but another really big thing is light pollution mm. um so mm-hmm. Artificial night lighting has dramatically changed the nocturnal environment because in urban environments, the soft glow of the moonlight is definitely overpowered by bright street lights. Yeah. Security lights, I mean, car headlamps. Look up in the sky in Melbourne, you can't see stars. No, like, well, you, know. you can see some, but yeah, like you <laughs> really many. can't see. I don't know. I was up at Mount Buller last yeah. weekend and like staying the night over there, and I yeah. just looked up and I was like, oh, yeah, stars. This is what stars <laughs> yeah. look like. You can see thousands more stars if you are at least one hour out of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, so one of the most obvious impacts of artificial light at night is that it attracts animals. And you know, the, the phrase drawing a moth to a fr- flame. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like that's kind of poetic, but when one moth becomes hundreds or potentially thousands, there's a really big yeah. ecological Problem. impact there. <laughs> mm. Um, so where does citizen science come in? I don't know if you've heard the campaign lights off for the moths. Yeah. No, but I love that. Lights <laughs> off for the moths. Lights <laughs> off for the moths. I, I really do like some of these, um, these zoos victoria campaign yeah. so, so this is Zeus right. victoria campaign but Love like it. they also have um when balloons fly seabirds die oh my gosh <laughs> um <laughs> and that has actually like so that started off as a campaign to be like blow bubbles instead of releasing balloons but mm. now like victoria has a ban on releasing balloons because of oh, that campaign wow. so it's actually like yeah really it's impactful. really effa- effective um so, you know, what what can you do? You turn off your lights. Like one of the biggest beacons, because, you know, mm. they're, they're flying from Queensland to Victoria. One of the mm. biggest beacons is Parliament House in Canberra. <laughs> of course it is. Up on a yeah. hill, like a lighthouse. But yeah, yeah, not great. Um, but I also mentioned Moth Tracker. So yeah. if you see these Bogan moths, um, definitely just take a photo because Zoos yeah. Victoria is really interested to know, like, are these moths around? Like, can yeah. we see them? Are they? Can we see them traveling down? So, yeah, there are so many ways in that we mm. can help insects and really all, you know, yeah. flora and fauna. But, yeah, we can be citizen Amazing. scientists just by snapping photos and turning lights off. I love that. That <laughs> yeah, fills so me with good. a little bit of hope after, you know, a little bit of a sad tale. So, mm. lovely. Um, and to bring us into our very next fitting song on this episode all about insects, we have Fireflies by Our City. Welcome back to Radio Silence. That was Fireflies by Al City. And uh, we're talking all about insects today. So, Kai, what insect are you talking about? Well, Kate spoke about mosquitoes, and we know mosquito bites are pretty annoying. Mm. They're, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, itchy, swell up a little bit, and sometimes can be around for like a 
couple of days or something. I don't know. And like we know, they ruin. They just ruin your time outdoors. <laughs> they just ruin the outdoors they for you. They it. just ruin, especially yeah. if they get in all your camp gear. Yeah. <laughs> especially if they happen to be carrying diseases. As oh well. yeah, they're going to ruin too. a lot that more too. than your yes. time outdoors. Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, that's pretty bad. Um, but in comparison to some insects, mosquito bites are very, very tame. How like the pain you get or annoyance from a mosquito mm. bite, basically nothing. Okay. And there's a little bit of like like definition of um, mosquitoes they only bite you they don't sting you so right because is that because they suck up the blood is it to do with the like yeah so when it, when a mosquito bites you they just want to suck your blood out mm, yeah. like you know they're not they're not out there to hurt you they just need a little bit of protein and, and whatever and unfortunately the only way they can access your blood is by piercing your it's skin by piercing mm. your skin yeah and mm. i think if they just pierced your skin you probably wouldn't even feel it like it's a tiny little i think they do also like inject like a little bit of yeah, yeah, um, that's it. Something. It's like an anticoagulant Saliva. stops your blood from clotting. Yeah, but so also as a bit of a, there's a bit of a painkiller in there as well, so you don't notice them initially to swat them, and then it, you yeah. only get itchy and swollen afterwards, afterwards. when that wears off. Yeah, um, so I, they're they're kind initially. <laughs> um, they just need to also put like a long lasting antihistamine in there. Yeah. <laughs> for us. Yeah. Um. So we've established mosquitoes. They're not really that out to hurt you. They just want to suck your blood. But many insects are out to cause pain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and often right. they like stinging insects are insects mm-hmm. that inject venom and yeah two reasons why they might want to do this one is to cause pain and two is to actually cause damage to whatever they're tr- like whatever they're stinging okay and this is a show about science scientists mm-hmm. do experiments and <laughs> oh my gosh do they, they do, ex- do experiments on themselves is this what we're this is where we're going because oh, i definitely yes. in researching my mosquito stuff like i was mind blown as to how they measured how someone is more or less attractive it wasn't just like sweat samples like people put their, put their arms, arms in tubes yeah. and there'd be like a y-shaped tube to see which mosquito like mm. how many mosquitoes would go down oh, each way and yeah. just like bite the people and yeah. then I saw this thing about this guy who had a rare species of mosquito and he just fed it off his own blood because he was like, I can't get anyone else's blood. So he would just like mm. stick his arm in the tube and let the like mozzies yeah. feed <laughs> off his off his arm. And I have a friend who had that as a job, like because, you know, research, yeah. like lab mozzies, they need to be they fed. To and be so, fed. you know, she was paid, you know, five dollars per yeah. whatever, per bite or I something. Hope got like a you know supply of, of bite cream or something. <laughs> yeah, you would have to be someone who doesn't have a very allergic reaction because yeah. people yeah. have varying reactions as well. Reactions. In terms of how yeah. much they swell up, so like not the job for everyone. No. But, uh, yeah, crazy. Oh my gosh! But I want to hear about people getting like yep. painful bites. So, like this is to keep mosquitoes alive, right? But like, this is this is to quantify pain. how painful an insect sting is. Because <laughs> of course you do that but on yourself. I was gonna say that's but how painful something is is also so. It is very subjective, mm. but subjective. like one person doing this with lots of different stings can rank yeah. which ones yeah, are yeah, 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 painful. Yeah. You can still get a ranking system. Even yeah. if it's yeah. not and like the a... person that's done this is, his name is Justin Schmidt. And I want to be mates with him. Won the 2015 Ig Nobel Prize. Good. Oh, well I'm done. glad. Well <laughs> yeah. deserved. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, that Ig Nobel Prize was for painstakingly creating the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which rates the relative <laughs> pain people feel when stung by various insects. Relative well pain. done. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I... Oh, that's uh, great. Go Schmidt. Um, but speaking of the Ig Nobel Prizes, they're actually coming up. Oh. I think next week they get they, they get announced this year, so we'll have to look Gosh, out for that. yes, yeah. And yeah, for those yeah. who don't know, the Ig Nobel Prizes are humorous version of the Nobel Prize for science that makes you laugh and then makes, makes you think. Mm, yeah. Um, anyway, 
Schmidt had to be stung by quite a lot of yeah. Indexes. Tell me, tell me what <laughs> I, I want to know to develop this pain index, and it's like it's as you said, pain is quite subjective, so mm. it's hard to to give it like too much deep. Like you know, you can't quantify it that specifically. Mm. So there's only four ratings on this scale. Okay. So you've got from one to four, where one he describes as almost pleasant. <laughs> I was going to say, this guy is absolutely a masochist. Like, absolutely. Yeah, so one is almost pleasant yep. and then that ramps up a bit to where four is unimaginable pain. And for, oh, my gosh. For reference, the Western honeybee, which is like the normal honeybee, yep. comes in at number two. Okay, oh, so the, uh-huh. the one that would have got stuck in my nose. Stuck in your nose, yeah. Number yeah. two. Number okay. two, so, Yikes. yeah. All right. Well, it was almost pleasant. No, it wasn't. Unpleasant, but not unimaginable. Yep. Um, Checks out. few more examples to sort of calibrate your idea of this scale. Most wasps come in at around three. Mm-hmm. So seems like wasps things are more I painful. I want to know what he stung himself things. with that gave him a four. <laughs> well, four is reserved for only the most intense yep. pain. Yeah. But like, did he test? He did test a four. Uh-huh. And the first run of experiments he did, he only gave one insect a four. Uh-huh. And it was the bullet ant, oh. which yeah. you can yeah. only find in the jungles of South America. Is that like where they stick their hand in and like have to keep it in there for a minute, like as a rite of passage? Oh, maybe, but I wouldn't want to be doing that. No. <laughs> oh, because that's... this ant in like local language is also known as the 24 hour ant. Oh. Because that's how long the pain lasts. Oh no. my gosh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. Because I just oh. remember like Hamish and Andy going there and like oh. one of them, I can't remember who it was, like, oh, you know, put it. their hand in it. Mm. That's mm. Oh. Yeah. And it's really funny that Schmidt also had like with all of the pain ratings for different insects, he had like mm. different like notes, you know, he included oh, yeah. a little, a short description. Mm. And for the bullet ant, he said, it's like walking over hot coals with a rusty nail in your heel. Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> That doesn't sound unimaginable to me. I, I mean, can imagine that. Pain. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, doesn't sound fun, but it's imaginable. Yeah, true. I wouldn't want to do it. Um, another example of an in, of an Almost insect pleasant. <laughs> that got a four was the warrior wasp, and interestingly, it's sound also tragic. called the drumming wasp because when they like their hive feels threatened, they yeah. sort of like bang on it, mm-hmm. oh my and gosh. it's like this papery hive, and it like yeah. amplifies the sound of all the wasps mm. banging, and it makes this like loud oh drumming gosh. sound to warn you off and be like, "Do not come here, or you're gonna get it." Or you're gonna, yeah, okay. So at least they warn you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're like these wasps are like bees, where if one stings you, it dies. Mm. So obviously right. they yeah. don't so just want to go wanna around like stinging everyone. Stinging, stinging, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Schmidt's notes for the warrior wasp was. It just this is a direct quote torture you, you are chained in the flow of an active volcano oh my gosh why did i start this list <laughs> <laughs> so mate you're committed now you're committed now yeah, like once you've done that once you've like endured i think that four like you've got to keep going you've got you to keep stop. going you're you're like, I've, I've suffered enough like no. i can't quit and it's now. funny like in interviews with him people like do you, do you want to do this? Like, why you keep doing this? And he's like, I don't want to get stung, but I want the data. <laughs> so, that is a true a committed scientist. Committed scientist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but speaking of the list of no insects. No one else is going to do it for him. <laughs> yeah, like- <laughs> that's right. I wanted to try and find like a full list, but I couldn't find one 
without digging too deeply, but I could find he's been stung over a thousand times <gasps> by 83 different species, which makes me think he's probably been stung by those number fours more than once. Mm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you build up some sort of like tolerance to the pain. Or the stinging. Well, like, you're the neuroscientist. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about insect stings. Well, I'll, yeah, we'll get, I'll get to that because i got something to mm. say about that. He's not just doing this for fun, obviously. <laughs> it is for science. And it's more than just, oh, how much does that mm. insect sting? Mm. How much does it hurt? Um, because he has an interesting hypothesis. Um, and he wants to see if there's some sort of correlation between pain and toxicity. Mm, I was going to say, is he taking any other data mm. or is it just like subjective pain rating? Like, is he looking at... What yeah, yeah, yeah. To his body afterwards, or you know, definitely because pain and toxicity are not the same thing, right? Yeah. So the, yeah. the venom that is in- injected by the stinging insect, like it might cause pain, mm. but that doesn't necessarily cause damage. Yeah, and mm. I'm sure Kate, you could go on about how <laughs> that's possible, but um, different receptors for different things. Exactly, it's and too long don't read version. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is, it's quite easy to measure the toxicity of mm. venom. You can you know, analyze it and go, all right, it's got this chemical in it mm. that does this to your body. And, you know, that's pretty straightforward. It's much harder to measure the pain mm. without subjecting yourself to it. Mm. Mm. And I don't, like, you yeah. wouldn't be able to get ethics to get any, like, to get, like, a student in to do this. <laughs> but, like, you could only get ethics probably to do this to yourself. But I wonder, like, because there are a lot of studies where you can't do things to yourself. So, like, I'm surprised mm. that, you know, you can get the ethics to do this. Because, you know, for example, researchers who use blood, they can't bleed themselves. Mm. Unless, you know, Unless mosquito there's research, like a specific, yeah, yeah. Mosquitoes are like, I, mean, yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe different fields of science have different yeah. rules around mm-hmm. this, it seems. <laughs> yeah, so like the whole idea of, of testing this pain index is to get like an idea if there's a correlation between pain and toxicity. Mm. Because the hypothesis is that there might be a correlation between toxicity and how social insects are. Mm. And the reason this is, is because like they think that originally insects evolved painful stings as like a deterrent. Yeah. You know, if you knew that you were going to get stung by trying to steal a bee's honey, like you're probably not going to do that. You're not going to steal the honey. Yeah. 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 But if that's just painful, eventually predators will learn like, eh, it it hurts. It's just pain, but like like, it didn't kill me. Pain is temporary, right? You know, I... It doesn't kill you. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So they like would eventually adapt to just ignore the stings. Yeah. Interesting. So then it kind of became this arms race, or this is the hypothesis that they, the insects made their stings more toxic so that it actually did Mm. matter if you got stung. Right. Yeah. And, and then this idea about how it interacts with like how social the insects are. If you're a solitary insect, having a painful sting, that's not toxic is fine. Mm -hmm. You sting a predator, it leaves you alone. You're good to go. Yeah. But if you're a social insect and you've got like a whole hive to de- defend mm. then maybe and they like the predators are going to be more attracted to a hive like if it's a yeah. honey yeah. like a beehive it's yeah. going to have honey in it that's like a quite a high value yeah. payoff yeah. so you know having a toxic sting that actually mm. does damage is probably more of an advantage to social insects yeah mm. because they're more attractive to yeah yeah so mm. you know it's mm. it's not worth a predator eating one solitary insect but it is worth it for the for social insects So, yeah, this hypothesis is that the social insects have developed, like, a much more toxic sting as a defense. Yeah. So that the the predators learn, like, if you get stung by 100 bees, you you might die. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like... Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. um, 
yeah, it's not just a pain thing anymore. So yeah, very interesting. And obviously Justin Schmidt had to do this research to, to get a quantification of the Honestly, pain. Honestly, I have so much respect for this man. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. New idol. Yeah. Oh, wow. All, all these things that people do in the name of science. I know, right? So much. So, yeah, I'm just thinking of like Barry Marshall, for example. Mm, yeah. Mm. Like, you know, just I'm going to swallow. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to swallow this flask of bacteria just to so see if that causes can... stomach ulcers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Nobel Prize well deserved. Yes, yes. And that was a Nobel Prize, not an Nobel Prize. Yeah. Well, I know. <laughs> not the one's better than the other. Like. <laughs> and the Ig Nobel Prizes are definitely more entertaining, that's yes. for sure. Oh, my they life goes to win an Ig, not a not yeah. Nobel. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode, all about insects. And can I just say... We snailed it. Yes, well done. <laughs> so we'll let you get back to this pretty swarm afternoon. Um, yeah, so don't forget that you can catch all past episodes anywhere that you find podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. So we're going to play you out with a song, Worms, by Baby Shower. <laughs>